So we've come in our series now on the biblical teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 5. And here we begin a new section. Maybe you noticed the title of that section when we read it. The section on deliverance. Over the past few weeks, we've been learning about the greatness of our sins and misery. How Christ teaches it to us by his, his perfect law of love. And how extensive the, the greatness of our sin really is. How, how big it is. Leaving us no hope except the Spirit of God regenerates us. And how it leaves us too under the just judgment and wrath of the Most High God. Unless there is a way of deliverance. Unless there is a deliverer. Our sins and miseries congregation will bring us to the place of everlasting punishment of body and soul. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. But that's not where the catechism stops. Because that's not where Scripture stops. No, the message of Scripture is not just about our sins and our sinfulness. It's about salvation from our sins and from our sinfulness. But the crucial question is then, where is that salvation? Where is that deliverance to be found? What is the way? And of course, we hopefully know the answer to that, most of us if not all of us. Deliverance and salvation is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. We know that in our heads. But we need to learn it. We need to learn the way of deliverance in our hearts and we need to keep learning it all our life long. Because the reality is, as one hymn writer once put it, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so with God's help, we want to look at the Bible-based teaching then of Lord's Day 5. In light of several scripture passages, also Hebrews 10, under the theme, learning the way of deliverance. There are three, three, three things about this way of deliverance. First, the demand we must meet. Secondly, the dead ends we try. And third, the deliverer we must seek. So first of all, the demand we must meet. Question and answer 12 of Lord's Day 5 makes the demand very clear. Question 12 asks, Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? Congregation, this is the cry of a convicted sinner. Someone who realizes his lostness in and of himself. Someone who is confessing his sin in depravity. He's agreeing with, with, with what God has revealed in his word about himself as a sinner. He's admitting that he is under the wrath and the judgment of God. And he is someone who is desperately crying out for salvation, for reconciliation with God. Beloved, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when the Lord, by His Word and by His Spirit, brings you to that point. Has that happened in your life? But what answer does the Catechism give to this desperate question? It doesn't answer like we might think it should. Instead of the answer being, yes, there is a way of escape, a way of deliverance in and through Jesus Christ, the the answer is almost a little disappointing, isn't it? God will have his justice satisfied. And therefore, we must make this full satisfaction, either by ourselves or by another. It almost, you you, you read it almost, and it seems like 
It's keeping us from Christ and, and keeping Christ from us. But dear beloved, it's not. What the catechism is doing here in this question and answer is drawing and guiding us to Christ alone by teaching and reminding us of the demand we must meet to be saved. God's demand that his justice be satisfied. That demand, congregation, is thoroughly, completely biblical. God was making this demand clear already in the Old Testament, before the coming of Christ. He was teaching the people of Israel in many ways, but especially also with the countless bloody sacrifices, the demand that must be met, that God's justice must be satisfied if there is to be deliverance. He was teaching them as Hebrews 9 verse 22 declares that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Christ himself in the New Testament teaches the same thing. In in Matthew 5, verse 20, for example, when he says, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. God's justice must be satisfied. The Bible in both the Old and New Testaments makes this very clear. If there is to be deliverance, we must meet God's demand of satisfaction of his justice. This is absolutely necessary for us to understand, congregation. Do you ever wonder about the future of the church? About the future of this church? It hinges on whether or not this biblical doctrine is maintained. One commentary on Hebrews 10 tells a story of a chapel in an English village that had sound gospel preaching for many years. The words on the arch of the church summed the preaching up very well. We preach Christ crucified. But eventually, over time, another generation grew up. And they did not grasp or they did not believe this all-important truth that deliverance comes only through the satisfaction of God's justice. And so what happened? Well, you can guess, can't you? The cross became repulsive. They didn't see the importance of it, and so they began to preach salvation by Christ's example instead of by his blood. And slowly, over time, some ivy grew up along that arch, and it covered the word crucified. And so what you could read then was, we preach Christ. But what happened next? The church And the preachers in that church thought and spoke about Christ less and less often. Instead, they preached on on social issues, on on politics, on good works, on on our moral duties and responsibilities. And the ivy continued to grow so that the only words you could see were we preach. They lost the gospel. They lost Christ. Christ, because they didn't understand or they chose not to believe the biblical teaching that deliverance, our deliverance comes only through the satisfaction of God's justice. That's the demand we must meet. It's a biblical demand and it's a thorough demand. God's justice must be satisfied and it must be satisfied fully. It must be satisfied fully perfectly 
because God is perfect. What does that look like? Well, the first thing it looks like is obedience to God's law. Perfect obedience at all times and in all places and in every circumstance. Not just external obedience, but but internal love from the heart. Remember that from Lord's Day 2? We saw that, didn't we? That's what Christ teaches in Matthew 22. The satisfaction of God's justice, His just requirements, requires affection for and love to God and our neighbor all the time. Love to God must be the motivation of everything we do. One person put it this way, to love God with our whole heart, to love Him in all that we do, in the very thought of our mind, in every deed we perform, with every step we take on life's pathway, in every relationship of life, that is our sacred and unchangeable obligation before God. But there's also something else. We don't just owe an unchangeable debt of unceasing love to God. The satisfaction of His justice also requires the complete punishment of our sins. Every sin. There's not one sin so small, beloved, that God can overlook. That He can just act as if, as, as if nothing's wrong. Just slip it under the rug, as it were. And even the smallest sin, as we might think about it, is enough to deserve God's punishment because it's committed, as we saw last time, it's committed against the eternal, the most high, the infinitely majestic God. You think about Adam's eating the fruit that God had commanded him not to eat. It seems so small. It's just a piece of fruit. But it brought the punishment of death upon Adam and upon the whole human race. Do you see with me what a, what a thorough demand we must meet in order to be saved, in order to be delivered, in order to be reconciled with God? But that's not all there is to say. Yes, it's biblical and it's thorough. We must fully satisfy God's justice either by ourselves or by another. But this demand congregation is also encouraging. It's encouraging because it opens up the possibility of deliverance. The answer to question 12 isn't Absolutely not. There's no way you can be saved. The answer is that there is a way through the satisfaction of God's justice by ourselves or by another. That means there is hope. Yes, yes, it is bounded hope. It is, it is guarded hope in that sense. But it is hope. And when we look at the whole testimony of Scripture, we discover, don't we, that there is so much reason for that hope. Already in the very beginning, in the very first day that Adam and Eve sinned, God revealed to them a way of deliverance, not by canceling His justice, but by pointing to its future satisfaction. He not only declared the promise of a coming Redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, but He also clothed them, we read in Genesis 3 verse 21, with the skins of an animal. And that meant that animal had to be killed. It was a sacrifice. You can think of Exodus 12 when God slew the firstborn of the Egyptians. How did the Israelites escape? By heeding God's command to kill and to eat the lamb without blemish and painting its blood on the doorposts. All through Scripture, 
There is, again and again, there is this hope. There is deliverance. There is a way God's justice can be satisfied. And so dear fellow sinner, dear fellow sinner, there is no reason to be here tonight without hope. The question is not whether there is a way of deliverance. The question is, do you know it? Have you learned it? And do you remember it? Or have you forgotten? Are you trying ways, perhaps, that don't work? The truth is, congregation, we all, even after we've learned the way of deliverance, too easily look in the wrong directions and go down the wrong paths for deliverance, paths that only end in dead ends. This brings us to our second point, the dead ends we try. That is what the Catechism warns us against in questions 13 and 14. Question 13 asks, can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? And its answer on the basis of Scripture is, by no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debts. This question describes the first way of deliverance we naturally try, ourselves. That's the first place we look by nature. Is there a way I can deliver myself? Is there a way I can save myself? Is there a way I can satisfy the justice of God myself? There must be something I can do. I, I, I. You see the self-reliance over and over again in Scripture. Do you remember, children, what happened when Moses sent the 12 spies into Canaan? What happened when they came back? Ten of them gave a a bad report of the land and the people refused to go in and then the Lord punished them, didn't he? He he, he condemned them to die in the wilderness for for their disobedience and their unbelief. He barred them from entering the promised land and when the people heard that, what did they do? Do you you remember? They mourned greatly. Numbers 14, 39 tells us. And then verse 40 tells us they got up early the next morning, went up to the top of the mountain and said, Lo, behold, we are here and will go up into this place, the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. You see what they were doing? They were trying to satisfy the justice of God themselves by their mourning, by their weeping, by their confession, by their new resolve. But it didn't work. Moses even warned them that it wouldn't work. He warned them that the Lord would not be with them. But they didn't didn't listen. They tried anyway. And what happened? They were defeated. Their mourning, their confessing, their resolving didn't satisfy God's justice. And the same is true of our tears, of our confessing, of our resolving, of our changing our behavior. Beloved, none of it satisfies God's justice. We cannot buy our way into God's favor, not even by our repentance. And yet how often don't, don't we try? Don't we, even as believers, tend to think that if I just do this, if I just do that, God will be pleased with me. You think of this morning's sermon. You remember the prophets of Baal, right? Everything they did to try and get Baal to accept them. And we, we look at them and we say, how foolish, how, how silly. But how different are we when it comes to trying to be accepted by God, by nature? We go all out. 
resolve to pray longer, to pray about more things, to spend more time in the Bible, to, 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 to go to more Bible studies. We, we resolve maybe even to, to fast occasionally. We put more money in the offering plate. We spend more time with the family. We show, show more gentleness to our children. We'll be more diligent as husbands and fathers and leading family worship. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Beloved, these are all good things. They are important things even. There's something wrong if, if those things don't concern us at all. But the question is, why? Why are you doing them? Why am I doing them? To earn the favor of God? To somehow, in, in some way, satisfy His justice? That's what the Apostle Paul used to do. In Philippians 3, he's warning there, the the Philippians, as he warns in many of his letters, against putting confidence in the flesh. And in in that context of warning against doing that, in verses 5 and 6, Paul lists the things about himself that that he used to trust in, that if, if we could put confidence in the flesh, well, look, he says, look what I could put confidence in. Circumcised the eighth day, he says, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's what Paul at one time trusted in. But he threw all that away. He threw them all away. He counted them as lost and even as dung. For what? For Christ. You see, he realized that whatever apparent righteousness he seemed to have with all those things, it wasn't the righteousness of God. It didn't satisfy God's justice. But Paul also knew how easy and natural it was to him and how easily, easy and natural it is even for, for Christians to, to, to be tempted to slip back into that kind of thinking, into that kind of living. That's why he wrote and he spoke so often and so strongly against those Judaizers who taught that the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be truly saved. But circumcision, Paul wrote again and again and again, could not save anyone. Not even in part. Why? Because, Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 3, it makes one a debtor to the whole law. And that's a debt we can in no way begin to pay. The Catechism says, rightly so, that on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. You see, what Paul says of himself in Romans 7, verse 18, is true of every one of us. In my flesh, in your flesh, in our sinful nature dwells no good thing. None. And what God said of the people who lived before the flood is true of everyone who has lived since the flood, apart from saving grace. Every imagination of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. Even after grace, congregation, even after grace, we increase our debt daily. We never get through a single day untouched and unscarred by sin. Oh no, we may not always see it. We may not always recognize all those daily sins, but God sees it. God knows it. He sees the selfish, the prideful motives. He sees the the unbelieving and the distrusting thoughts. He sees the grumbling and the complaining hearts. 
And that's why, beloved congregation, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, didn't he? That when they pray, they are to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors because we daily increase our debts. Satisfying God's justice by ourselves, congregation, in full or in part, is a dead end road. It cannot be done. Have you learned that personally for yourself? Have you learned to say with Horatius Boner over and over again, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. But if we can't do it, if you can't do it, then, then, then can someone or something else? In the words of question 14, can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? Again, the catechism answers, none. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man has committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. Doesn't this question highlight how persistent we can be in, in our pride? Oh, how unwilling we can be to admit our need of God. But here's the thing, that pride can look actually quite good. It can look religious. It can look pious. We will admit we can't really do anything of ourselves to satisfy God's justice. But what about other creatures? This question, of course, congregation was very relevant for the time when the catechism was written because countless people in that time were looking to Mary and to the saints to save them as if they somehow added something to the merit of Christ. And it was relevant to, a question like this would have been, was relevant too for the Hebrew Christians to whom the book of Hebrews was written. They were being tempted, as I mentioned when we read the, the passage, that they were being tempted to return to all the Old Testament ceremonies and the animal sacrifices in the temple. But the passage we read, Hebrews 10, is just one of many passages in Hebrews that warns them not to do that. Hebrews 10 verse 1 reminds them that the animal sacrifices offered in the temple cannot make anyone perfect. They were shadows pointing to the one sacrifice that was needed, the sacrifice that Christ Jesus made himself. If those animal sacrifices could really have satisfied our sins, for our sins, then they would have ceased to have been offered. And there would have, there would have been no need for them because the worshipers who had brought them once purged, verse 2 says, would have no more conscience of sins. But it is not possible, verse 4, that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Now, I haven't met all of you, but I know there's a few farmers in this congregation. If we were to take all the animals of all the farmers combined and sacrificed all of them, what this text is saying is it wouldn't satisfy God's justice for a single person. Animals cannot substitute for man. 
They could only point to the substitute we need. Man has sinned and man must pay. Man must satisfy. Maybe you say, okay, that's fine, but is that really all that important for us? I mean, probably few, if if any of us, I'm, I'm guessing, are tempted to go back to bloody animal sacrifices or even to praying to Mary and to, and to the saints or angels. But aren't there other mere creatures, other created persons or created things that we're tempted to look to, that we're tempted to rely on, that we're tempted to see as a way of deliverance, of, a way of making us acceptable to God? Maybe it's our parents, the faith of our parents. That'll, I don't have to worry. Or the prayers of our parents. Of course, we should be thankful for their faith and we should be thankful for their prayers, but their faith and their prayers cannot satisfy God's justice for you. Or maybe we think that the godliness of our spouse will somehow get us favor with God. But it won't work because even a fellow human being who might want to save you cannot. The debt is too big. The burden of God's wrath is too great. It's eternal. It's infinite. And so your parents or your spouse can't even begin to pay your debt because they can't even begin to pay their own debt. You know, we love to talk about, don't we, we sing about sometimes the, the, the infinite love of God like, like an ocean. You, you hear sometimes songs that talk about God's love that way, and that is wonderful. But it works both ways because it's not just one attribute of God that is infinite. It's not just His love. There's also His justice and His just wrath against sin is just as infinite as His love. It's just as much of an ocean. And no mere creature can empty that ocean of God's justice. Psalm 49, 7 and 8 says, No one, no one, not even the richest people in the world can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. They cannot buy him an escape. Why? Because the redemption of their souls is costly. Don't think someone else by their religion or by their godliness or by anything else can get you into God's book of life. Relying on another mere creature is just as much a dead end as relying on ourselves. So we are left bankrupt. We are left with a debt we cannot pay ourselves. We are left with a debt that no other mere creature can pay for us. But there is a way of deliverance. And that way is described for us In question and answer 15, what sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? The answer is for one who is very man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is one who is also very God. This is the deliverer we must seek, which we will now consider now more briefly in our last point. In the first place, we must seek a deliverer who is also a mediator. Children, do you know what a mediator is? A mediator is someone, well, maybe you can think about it like this. Have you ever fought with your brother or sister and you needed someone to, to step in, a parent maybe or another brother or sister, to, 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 to break up the fight and then, 
to reconcile you together. That's what a mediator does. He reconciles two people, two parties that are at war with each other. And that's what our deliverer must do. He must reconcile us to God. And that means that he must satisfy God's justice on our behalf, in our place, because God's demand doesn't change. It isn't, it's an unflinching demand. It's not like the mediator comes and, you know, one side gives a little bit and the other side gives a little. No, no. God's justice must be satisfied through the work of the mediator. And that mediator needs to be man. That's what the role of the priest was all about in the Old Testament. Remember that? Especially the high priest. It was there to teach their pe- the people their need for a human mediator. It was there to teach them that they couldn't just come to God on their own. They needed a substitute who could represent them before God. A substitute who could satisfy God's, ju- God's justice in their place. But here was the problem the Old Testament priest could not satisfy. Hebrews 10 verse 11 says that every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. These priests could not satisfy. Why? Well, part of the reason is that they had their own sins to pay for. They were not perfectly righteous. You see, the mediator we need must be man and he must be perfectly righteous. Earlier in Hebrews, in chapter 7 verse 26, we're told that the high priest... We need the one that becomes us, the one who is suitable and fitting for us is one who is holy and harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. That's the only way, congregation, God's justice can be satisfied in the place of sinners. The mediator must be like the sacrificial lamb, a lamb without blemish. But you say, this is the whole problem. There is no mere man who is perfectly righteous who can be such a mediator for us. Even if there was, he couldn't bear God's eternal wrath. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why the mediator we need must also be more powerful than all creatures. He must be God. That's the point we must come to. The point of confessing and acknowledging by the power of the Holy Spirit, not just that we cannot deliver ourselves, that we cannot satisfy God's justice, and not just that no other mere creature can do it for us, but that our only hope of deliverance is in God. And in Him alone, and in Him incarnate. God with us. Emmanuel. So that we say with Bonar, Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine. No other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Have you come? Have you come to that point? Are you seeking that deliverer? Lord's Day 5 doesn't name him, but you know his name. 
is Jesus. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He is your and my only hope. We will, we will learn more why that's true next time when we look at Lord's Day 6, Lord willing. But you do not have to wait till then. No, indeed, you must not wait till then to seek Him. You must go to Him now. You must rely on Him every day because He is our great mediator, our only hope, our Savior, and He is ready and He's willing to receive all who come to Him. He will turn no one away. So come and abide with Christ. Amen.